0: Well, I went to college in the early 2000s, and having become a brand new Christian, I started attending a small Baptist church. And it was right around that time when this new book came out that was taking the Christian world, especially the Christian young adult world, by storm. It was called I Kiss Dating Goodbye by Joshua Harris. And being in a church full of college students, everyone read it. It was like required reading, pretty much. And the book is all about giving up casual dating, premarital sex, the hookup culture in favor of intentional and biblical courtship to try and find the godly spouse. It's not a perfect book, but it, it, it's easily caricatured, but it still remains solid and biblically sound. The same cannot be said, though, of its author. You may have heard in the past few weeks, author and pastor Joshua Harris announced that he was separating from his wife. They've gone, undergone some significant changes, and so they decided to amicably split And shortly thereafter, he clarified what he meant by significant changes, namely that he's no longer even a Christian. He wrote this in a statement, quote, I've undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian, end quote. We've seen high-profile Christian leaders waver in recent years. But this outright, just complete denial of the faith by a high-profile Christian leader comes as a shock to many. And you might, as you might expect, the sexual revolution had something to do with this. In his announcement, Harris also expressed repentance, not before God, but before the LGBT community. He apologized for his views in his books on sexuality and regrets standing against marriage equality. And having resigned as a pastor a few years ago, he's now moving full speed ahead as a marketer and an entrepreneur. Now, when some Christians hear this, especially those who knew Harris, knew his ministry, they feel saddened, discouraged, even betrayed. How could this happen? It may even leave some or lead some rather to question their own faith. And personally, though, I'm saddened but never discouraged by the failings of other people, especially other Christian leaders. I've learned over the years not to let the faith failings of others affect me. I mean, really, why should it? Just because people deny and reject Christ, that does not make him any less true. My faith is in Christ, not in that popular Christian leader. And well, Jesus remains the same. So nothing really should change. And also, its perspective helps that, you know, this is tragic and sad, but it's also nothing new. And the early church was peppered by prominent leaders who fell away from the faith. And Paul tells us about Hymenaeus, who made shipwreck of his faith. And Demas, having loved this present world, deserted. And then Alexander the coppersmith did Paul much harm. These were all prominent men who became leaders in the church who later fell away. They were ministry partners with the apostle Paul, but years later they had wandered morally or theologically greed and worldliness took their toll and, and they fell away in Harris's case upon reflection. His apostasy is is very sad, but it's not, it's not very surprising in his books and his teaching on purity caught so much flack over the years that he was getting scorn and criticism on both sides. Of course, the non-Christian world just ruthlessly ridiculed him as this, you know, prude Christian legalist for upholding purity before marriage. I mean, how could you you believe that? But in recent years, he received more heat from the Christian world, or at least the so-called Christian world. Now, his teaching in his book is actually, it's not legalistic. But you can bet it surely was championed by legalists, And they turned just some basic biblical principles into law like thou shalt not date. His biblical teaching was either warped or misapplied, and it led many to be hurt or disillusioned. And Harris has testified about how much heartbreaking feedback he's received from his books, all of which he's recanted, by the way, and he's asked the publisher to stop printing all of his books. But it seems clear in recent years that Harris just desperately wanted acceptance I can only imagine he got just worn down by the endless criticism and scorn for his teaching, which was just biblical teaching. But slowly but surely, man's ways and man's thinking and man's values took the place of God's in his heart. He wanted to gain man's acceptance. Then you add this, the tidal wave of the sexual revolution with its join or die mentality. That was likely the straw that broke the camel's back. And so somewhere along the line, he just decided to leave the rock of Christ and enter the stream of the world. His marriage, his faith were casualties in this move, but now he, he is safely embraced by the world. And Harris is not the first or the last to leave the faith. My counsel to you though, is not to be discouraged by events like this, that your faith is founded on God's word. Nothing has changed in that regard. And your faith is in Christ Jesus. He has not changed. He's still on the the throne. He's still building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. The Lord is not shocked or surprised by this. But instead, it's for these reasons that in his word, he's warned against apostasy. If anything, this merely accentuates the call to persevere in the faith and why you need to do it. There's forces against you. And you might recall, we received such a call from our passage in Colossians 1 last week. You can turn there now, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We left off in verse 23. It ended with this call to continue in the faith. Firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. There's so many forces that want to move us away. We need to remain Steadfast, and so we need these calls and these reminders to anchor our hope in Christ and His gospel, not ourselves, not our emotions, not our experience, not what the world thinks of us, but just in Christ. And given Harris's recent apostasy, I find it only providential and fitting that you know, as we're going through this passage just verse by verse, it just so happens that Paul follows up this call to persevere by by stressing his own commitment to the ministry on their behalf. Now, in the passage that follows for for this morning, Paul, he's not being boastful. He's not being prideful. He's being strategic. Because you have to remember, he's writing this letter to the Colossian church. He's never met them. Never even seen them face to face that they don't, they know of him, but they don't know him. And so his words, his exhortations to them, some of them strong, might come across as presumptuous or arrogant. Like, who does this guy think he is writing to us out of the blue like this, right? But he feels compelled to let them know that, no, he's been concerned for them for some time. And his whole identity is that of a minister of Jesus Christ, a minister of the gospel, a minister of the church. That includes the Colossians. And Paul has many good reasons for writing to them. He's just sold out to his identity as a minister, and he wants to write to them. He cares about them. And this is still what the church needs. Ministers who are completely sold out to the Lord, to spreading his gospel, to making his name great, who are not allured by the world or the things of the world, who are not defeated by persecution or suffering, but are even willing to suffer for the name of Christ, and don't forget, when Paul writes Colossians, he's in prison for the gospel, his first Roman imprisonment. And so I'll tell you what, if you find yourself from time to time discouraged by, by people like Joshua Harris, ministers who fall away, let yourself receive 10 times more encouragement by the Apostle Paul and ministers like him who stay the course and who remain faithful amidst greater persecution greater affliction, greater scorn, greater suffering. In writing to the Colossians, Paul here really puts on display the type of faith we need and the type of ministers we need. And so I want us to drive some encouragement from the Apostle Paul today. He puts himself on display, again, not boastfully, just he's pouring out his heart for them. And so in verses 24 and following, through the end of the chapter, Paul gets personal. He's going to share his heart of ministry, and he's going to relate that to the Colossians. Uh, he's writing to them for good reason. Uh, and In chapter 2 and following, he gets into the, the bulk of this letter. It's going to be off to the races, but here he's showing them his ministry. And so from his personal testimony over this week and next week, I want to derive seven marks of a true minister of Jesus Christ that you might be encouraged. Seven marks of a true minister of Jesus Christ that you might be encouraged. For some of us, this is who we are to be. For others, this is who we are to follow. And for all of us, this is an encouraging example of you know, continuing in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So let's be instructed and let's be encouraged here by the Apostle Paul. We'll begin with number one, the minister's status. The first mark, the minister's status. And this actually comes from the end of verse 23. We didn't quite finish it last week. And Paul mentioned how Christ has reconciled us through his death. And then he says this, go back to verse 23 of Colossians 1. We'll just be reading as we go. He's speaking of Christ's reconciliation. And he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Now, after this, so he's just talked about the gospel and in typical Pauline fashion. He's going to take that mention of the gospel and now just run with it. It's own new thought. So back in verse 23, now he's talking about the gospel and he goes on to say, verse 23, the gospel... That you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. You know, the gospel, it's the good news message of Jesus. His life, death, burial, resurrection, his victory over sin, his work of redemption and reconciliation. It's a message of how Jesus can save and transform sinners. The Colossians had heard this message from Epaphras, not Paul, but from Epaphras. But they weren't the only ones to hear. Paul says how the same gospel was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. He's obviously using hyperbole just to make a point that this gospel message of Jesus, this is not obscure, this is not hidden. This is not some secret knowledge that's only meant for the intellectual elite or the super spiritual. Now, this good news is for all. It was designed to go out to all people, and in large measure, it already has gone out to all creation. The apostle Paul was largely responsible for that, right? He had taken this gospel of Jesus far and wide in the known world. The name of Jesus was already being proclaimed in, in all the corners of the empire. And then, do you know what they were already saying of Paul? Just Already they were saying this. Just listen to Acts 19.26. Speaking of Paul, this man says, You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. You know, if you're in the idol-making business back then, in the gospel of Jesus Christ is bad news because it means your, your idols are no gods at all. There's only one true God in heaven. He's perfectly revealed by his son, Jesus Christ. There's good news in that message that this Jesus came to die on the cross, that we might be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God, but it's bad news for those who want to hold on to their sin. Many, though, came to believe in this message. And despite... A lot of opposition and a lot of hardship that Paul was just going to keep going, spreading this message all over, just from town to town. If they if run him out of one town, well, on to the next town. Why? What, what, what drove him? Well, simply he was a minister of the gospel. That's what he says at the end of verse 23, right? He's still talking about the gospel. And he says, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister it's interesting how he singles himself out, because if you go back to Colossians 1.1, 1, 1, who's, who's sending this letter to the Colossian church? It's coming from Paul and Timothy, but here he just singles himself out. I, Paul, was made a minister. It's Not like he's trying to say Timothy was not also a minister of the gospel. It's just that, you know, like I said, he's, he's getting personal with the Colossians that for Paul, being a minister of the gospel was personal. It was everything to him. It was his whole identity, his status. This is the minister's status, a servant. You know, the word minister just means servant. It comes from the Greek word diakonos, which was originally the word used for waiting a table. And our word today for that is waiter. And I think that's actually the perfect picture of what this word means, and what it means to be a minister. Now, today our word in English, minister, has very religious connotations, right? But what if we just started calling elders and pastors waiters instead, right? We we could, we should. Men love titles of honor and prestige. You can call me bishop or cardinal or archbishop or pope. How about instead we just call you waiter? It's a biblical title. Excuse me, waiter, what will you be preaching on next Sunday? (laughs) Really, that's what this word minister communicates. To minister means to serve. And the minister's status is that of a servant. Later, this term diakonos came to be associated with those who serve in the church, meeting the material needs of others. So this word became a technical term, that we now transliterate into the word deacon. That's where the word deacon comes from. It refers to those who serve with their hands. But understand that elders, pastors, even apostles like Paul. Anyone who ministers the gospel is likewise a servant. They may not be devoted to meeting the material needs of the body of Christ. That's the emphasis of deacons. But their job is to meet the spiritual needs of the body. And in that regard, they are servants nonetheless. Servants of Of the gospel. First Corinthians three, five, Paul said, What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. In First Timothy one twelve, he said, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. I think it's very important to keep in the front of our minds both those of us who lead and those who follow that ministers are primarily servants, that even Christ Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve, Mark ten forty-five. He tells us greatness in his kingdom looks like service. It's like sacrificially laying down your life for others. And the church needs fewer men interested in selfish gain, personal ambition, Vainglory, see the church is a means of filling their own pockets or, or making a name for themselves. And instead, we need more who are humble and sacrificial and Christ like servants. And those are the men God uses to harvest his fields. And again, though, for Paul, this service was personal, it was special. And we are all called to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are all called to serve one another. But some are called by God as special servants or ministers of the gospel. And this was Paul. And for now, Paul wants the Colossians to know that though he did not minister the gospel to them personally, his whole identity was wrapped up in being a servant of the gospel. And so he exists to serve them. In fact, he already has served them in a way you might not expect, in a way you might not think about. his service on their behalf has included suffering. He has already suffered on their behalf. This leads to the second mark of a true minister. Secondly, the minister's suffering. The minister's suffering. Look at verse 24, a very interesting verse. Colossians 1, 24. He says after this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Part of being a minister means suffering on behalf of the church. Now, before we really talk about that, though, I'm sure you have questions. This verse is well known for its many interpretive challenges and all the questions it spawns. You might be wondering, like, you know, how can Paul suffer on behalf of the Colossians whom he's never met? Now, how can he suffer on behalf of the whole church? And also, you see the, this mention of Christ's afflictions. What are those, and in what way are they lacking? You know, he said they're lacking, but was the atonement not complete? And furthermore, how, how can Paul fill up that lack? Is he saying that it's up to us to complete the sufferings of Jesus in some way? Right? What does this mean? Like I said, it leads to many questions. Let's start really quick with what it does not mean. We've got to you know grapple with this. It's very clear that Paul is not saying that the redemptive suffering of Jesus was incomplete. He's not saying the atonement was not finished. As if it's up to Paul and others to finish the job. And that might seem obvious to you, but... It's important to point out because it's verses like these that can be misinterpreted misinterpreted and lead to false teaching. In fact, this very verse has been used in support of a Roman Catholic doctrine known as the the Treasury of Merit. You ever heard of that? The Treasury of Merit. They believe and teach that the saving merits of Jesus that he earned entered this, this treasury And it's on the basis of these merits as as they're pulled out and applied that a sinner can be forgiven of his sins and reconciled to God. And Christ's merits are supremely valuable, but he's not the only one contributing to this treasury of merit from which we're saved. This treasury also includes the prayers and the good works of the Virgin Mary and all the saints. So all the good deeds and all the sufferings of holy men, they've been added and and contributed to this treasury of merit, and that's then applied to sinners to forgive them. As a side note, this later gave rise to the sale of indulgences. That's where you could gain access to the treasury of merits by paying some money. Now, these ideas are all just completely unbiblical, though, not to mention false and misleading. You know, they actually use verse 24 here in support as if Paul was meritoriously suffering on behalf of the church. But especially if you are here with us last week, you know, that notion should be just ridiculous given the context. I remember back in verses 20 through 23, he literally just finished saying that Christ and Christ alone has reconciled all things to himself. And he's made complete peace by the blood of his cross. That his atonement was paid in full. You remember his cry it is finished. There's nothing left to pay. The debt of our sin was paid completely. And you, you cannot contribute to that work. And Paul is not suggesting that his sufferings contributed to the work of the cross. And the whole New Testament teaches the sufficiency of Christ's death. And you add any work to Christ's work, you have a false gospel. That's what Paul was all about. In the Colossian heretics were denying Christ and his sufficiency to save, and Paul is not agreeing with them here. And furthermore, this word for affliction in verse 24, this word is never used as an atonement term. This word is never used to speak of the death or the suffering of Jesus in our behalf. And so when Paul speaks of Christ's afflictions, he's not talking about Christ's sufferings on the cross. So what is Paul talking about, and what does he mean in this verse? And the answer comes in understanding the nature of Paul's sufferings. He's clearly talking about his own personal physical suffering, right? I mean, see that in verse 24, he says, these are his sufferings in the flesh. You see that? That's clear. You might recall 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul recounts some of those physical sufferings he received. There were imprisonments, beatings, time without number lashings, stonings, starvation, exposure. It's just the list goes on. But it also mentions in that passage why he suffered. That these sufferings were all displays of him being a servant of Christ. That's for uh, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. These were the means by which Paul was displaying he was a true servant of Christ. He was willing to ready and willing to suffer for the gospel as part of the way of Christ. But now we need to relate Paul's sufferings to the church and to Christ because he does both in verse 24. And first, he believes his physical sufferings were for the sake of the Colossian church and really the whole church. How can that be? Well, that's actually simple enough. Now, Paul was often made to suffer physically simply on account of being a minister of the gospel And a minister of the church. Much of the affliction he received. It it wasn't personal. This came on behalf of his identity. As a minister. He was passionately promoting Christ. And his church. And so he received just a lot of heat. For that. Remember how China had this one child policy. Remember that. And so if you had two or three children. You were going to pay. You would be penalized. You would be made to suffer on behalf of your kids. Just by virtue of being their parent and having too many kids, you were going to suffer. In kind of a similar manner, Paul was made to suffer just by virtue of being the spiritual father of all these churches. He had too many kids. He was spreading too much. And he was their minister. And so a lot of the hatred that was directed to Christ and the church, well, it just fell on the figurehead. It, It fell on Paul. Now, speaking of Christ, we also need to relate Paul's sufferings to Christ because he says that too. Look again, he says that in his suffering, he was filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. This word affliction is derived from the word to crush or to press, to squeeze something and is applied to the, the pressures of life that squeeze us or just the evils that oppress us. So we're talking about affliction or tribulation or trouble. I mean, have you ever had trouble in life that just puts you under intense pressure? It's some affliction and it just felt like an anvil on your back. You couldn't sleep. And with this word, we're not talking about the sufferings Jesus underwent on the cross. We're talking about the pressure that comes just from following Jesus. These are the afflictions that pertain to Christ. Christ the trouble that comes in association with following Christ. And this trouble is intensified for those who are ministers of Christ. I mean, look, didn't Jesus promise this for his disciples? Remember John fifteen eighteen and following, just listen. He told them, he said, if the world hates you, well, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. Now, the darkness hates the light. Naturally, therefore, they hated Christ. But now that Christ is gone, the world directs its hatred toward his church. If they can't strike at the head, they'll happily strike at the body. And so these are the afflictions that are of Christ, the afflictions that pertain to Christ. And they're lacking in the sense that the world has not gotten its fill in showing Christ and his people their hatred and they will not. You know, all Jesus did was preach the good news of God's grace and love to people. And sure, that message confronted them over their sin, but it then gave them the answer for their sin. But still, they hated him for it because they loved their sin. And ministers are called to do the same thing, to to preach that message. Nonetheless, Paul did that. He did the same. and, And for that, he was made to suffer. Just think back to Paul's conversion. Acts chapter 9, verse 4. This light flashes around Saul of Tarsus. Then a voice comes out and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, Saul, he was one of the guys who was showing that hatred toward Christ's church. But in reality, he wasn't really persecuting the church. He's persecuting Christ himself because the head is not detached from the body. But God had different plans for Saul, who was going to become Paul. And God transformed Paul on that day and drew him to himself. But don't forget what Jesus himself said of Paul on that day. This is Acts 9, verse 15. It says, the Lord said to to him, go, it's talking about Paul here. It says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. You know, God, by his grace, had chosen Paul for salvation and chosen Paul for service. He was going to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus. But guess what? In a world of darkness that hates the light, That ministry is just going to come with suffering. That those who minister, especially Paul, are just going to be made to suffer for Christ's name's sake. Clearly, though, Jesus, he did not think Paul was going to be joining him in making atonement for sinners. No, but instead, all Christians who take up the name of Christ, and especially ministers, they can expect the world to afflict them as it did Christ. Paul knew this well, but he also knew how the Lord could, could use his sufferings as a powerful witness and testimony of the gospel. You know, he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 11, just again, listen, throwing a lot of verses at you, but just listen to this passage, 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 11. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, Persecuted. But not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. It's like Paul said over in Galatians 6.17... He says, I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. And he's talking about his scars. And his back must have been just a mangled mass of scar tissue from all the lashings and beatings he received just for preaching Christ. But the point he's making is that although we may be made to suffer, even physically for Christ, that as we endure, we leave behind such a powerful testimony of that gospel message, and if it's its power to save, to transform lives. And this is simply a minister's lot. And again, I think it's so important for all Christians, but especially ministers, to have this perspective. Because if you don't, if you don't know that suffering, that picking up your cross comes with the territory of following Christ and ministering Christ, it's going to lead to compromise. and as you preach Christ, even you, as you share the gospel with your neighbors, what do you do when it, 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 you receive affliction or persecution or, or scorn because of it? If you know, some, when the heat turns up, they're not willing to suffer for Christ and his gospel, even, even if it's just ridicule. So they compromise. You know, I think I'll just stay quiet. I'll sit this one out. I'm not going to say that. The person might be offended by that. I'm just going to tone it down. I'm gonna, maybe I won't even say anything at all. And I'm not willing to, to suffer for Christ and his gospel. And sadly, I see in people like Joshua Harris, eventually this unwillingness to suffer for Christ. And it doesn't always have to be physical. Sometimes we're just talking about suffering shame or ridicule or scorn. Maybe it's the loss of reputation in the world. But we need ministers who are not ashamed of the gospel. And they will just keep ministering the gospel for the sake of the elect, nonetheless. This is what Paul told Timothy. Second Timothy 1.8. He said, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And take it a step further. We need ministers like Paul who can even count it all joy. You know, going back to verse 24, isn't that what he says? He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He didn't rejoice in spite of his suffering. He rejoiced in his suffering. He didn't rejoice when his suffering was over. He rejoiced in the midst of his suffering. And this this confronts us. that most view any suffering or affliction as the end of the world. It's the worst thing that could happen and it leads to depression, despair, bitterness, anger, resentment towards God. But not for Paul. He did not view suffering as a problem that must be escaped at all costs. Otherwise, we can't have joy. No, he accepted it as one, part of living in a fallen world. And two, part of picking up your cross to follow Jesus. But the fact that we can suffer With a purpose. And as we suffer and endure. We can hold out the gospel to others. That can give us joy. I mean how can we put a lamp over the basket. Even if the world hates us for it. Too much is at stake. The work of the ministry. Is a costly business. But the true minister is the one who has counted that cost. And accepted it. This is no small deal. If we cannot count on our leaders and ministers to endure hardship and persevere in the faith, how, how can we expect that of our people? But we don't have to worry. We can trust that God is faithful to preserve his chosen men, to raise them up and preserve them. But this is simply the expected minister's suffering. This is part of the cost of ministering the gospel, whether you're a pastor or not. You can just be an ordinary Christian, you're you're still in a measure a minister of the gospel as you share and witness the gospel. This is the minister's suffering. Well, let's get through one more of these seven marks of a true minister today. This will be our last one for today. Number three, the minister's stewardship. Minister's status, the minister's suffering. Thirdly, the minister's stewardship. Let's get into verse 25. He says in verse 25, of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. And Paul pivots here and adds the fact that not only was he made a servant of the gospel, verse 23, but also here he's made a servant or minister of the church. Now, of course, he's go together. You serve Christ. Well, that means you serve his gospel and you serve his church. But Paul adds here this dimension of stewardship over the household of God. The word steward refers to a household manager. He may have a wealthy estate owner. And he wanted to spend his time devoted to other affairs. So he would hire a household manager, a steward, who would take care of his estate. And the steward would just do everything from the finances to the, the daily operations, the maintenance, overseeing the other workers and servants. And as you can imagine, this was an important position of great trust and responsibility. And it provides another fitting image of the minister. The church did not belong to Paul. The Colossian church was not Paul's church. No church was Paul's church. No church belongs to any pastor or minister. This is not my church. It doesn't matter if a person founded a church or has been at a place a really long time. It's not his church. It is Christ's church. It belongs to him. The minister is merely the household steward for just just a short time, taking care of things, shepherding the flock until the master returns. The master will return. The steward will give an account. So can you imagine the shame of a, of a steward who acted like the house belonged to him? No, ministers need to get it straight. They're employed by God and his house to do his bidding for his glory, not their own. And this stewardship is not for the personal gain of the minister. It's for the benefit of the body. You see that in verse 25? He says, so this stewardship is for your benefit overseeing shepherding the flock the work of the ministry it's for the benefit of the church and this fits with the minister's primary task of feeding the flock by giving them the whole counsel of the word of god by which they might grow and paul combines his ideas over in first corinthians 4 1 and 2 he says let a man regard us in this manner how should we be regarded how did paul want others to regard him He says, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Being a steward of Christ's church, it's an important position. So you have to be qualified. You have to be faithful. You have to be trustworthy. And for you will give an account. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And this is all the more sobering for those who do not fulfill their ministry. You know, second Timothy was Paul's final letter. He wrote that right before he died and was killed for the gospel, for preaching Christ. This is his final words to young Timothy. And near the end of second Timothy, he tells him in second Timothy four five, he says, but you Be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The word ministry, it's derived from the same word for servant. Fulfill your service, carry out your stewardship. It might might involve some hardship, endure it and then finish the job. Young Timothy was known for being timid in the faith and timid in his leadership. And he needed boldness, and encouragement if he was going to pick up the torch from Paul. So Paul writes to admonish him and encourage him. And accordingly, Paul prays for him to carry on. And I think that has to be our, our grand takeaway from our text this morning. And we've really just started to unfold the portrait of the true minister of the gospel of Jesus. We've seen the stakes. We've seen what it takes. And most certainly, this is what the church needs if its people are to likewise endure and hold fast. And this being the case though, there is something the church can do for its ministers. It can pray for them and it must. We need true ministers who are faithful to their calling. Therefore, we need to pray for our ministers to be faithful for, or to their calling. I mean, do you pray for your pastors, elders, shepherds, any leader like this? Wouldn't you say they they have a bigger target on their back? So wouldn't that merit bigger prayers, more prayers maybe? And pray for me, pray for my boldness, my faithfulness. I can't rely on my personal strength to endure and remain faithful. I need the Lord's strength. Pray for that. And this was Paul's prayer. We'll find later in Colossians, he's going to call on them to pray for him. In fact, he says something very similar in Ephesians. Let me read that for you, this final passage. Ephesians six, eighteen through 20. And just again, listen along. As he concludes Ephesians, he says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view. Be on the alert with all perseverance. And petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. He said that from prison as well, and this is how, though, the minister ought to speak the gospel in boldness whether you're in chains or out, to speak in boldness. And we need to resolve to pray for our ministers to that end, that the Lord would make his servants faithful and then use them to proclaim the good news of Christ far and wide, because the light of Christ is the only hope in a world that's dark and and getting darker. Let that be our resolve. Until next time, let's pray. Father, Father God and Lord, we thank you this morning for your word and, and it's, its testimony, of this example of your chosen instrument. The Apostle Paul is no special man. Only Christ is Lord and Savior, but you still can use fallen men for your purposes. You can use broken clay vessels for your purposes. In fact, you get greater glory when you use fallen, broken clay vessels, and we thank you just for how you used the Apostle Paul to teach, to preach, to, to shepherd, to evangelize, and there's the lasting witness he has left behind through your inspired word of a faithful and true minister, one who accepts his identity and status as just a servant, a pure servant of Christ, the gospel, and the church, and one willing to suffer for that service as he stewards the house of God. We need to be encouraged by this and that you are faithful to raise up men to do the same, to carry on that torch and to endure. We, we pray for that end uh, continually for, for our ministers, for our elders, for our pastors, that they would likewise be bold and be faithful, that they would carry on and endure and keep ministering that gospel in all boldness. I pray you help us to be faithful ourselves in that act in praying for our leaders as you call us to do something we need to do. And that's what we pray for Joshua Harris. We, we love him and we pray for his repentance that it's not too late for him to turn back and to call upon his Savior once again and, and to return. And so our heart goes out to him that he would turn back to the Savior. We thank you for our time in the word again and help us to remain faithful and cling fast to the gospel and pray accordingly. In Christ's name we pray, amen.